0: Welcome to the 11th episode of the podcast, Live Theory, Living, Writing, and Rhetoric. I'm Ryan Liak, co-chair with my colleague, Ellen Whalen-Smith of the Dornsife Writing Program at the University of Southern California, which hosts this podcast. We're here with colleagues today to, to discuss AI, chat, GPT, and the like, and its potentials and pitfalls for doing and teaching writing and rhetoric, as well as its relation to writing program administration. This episode, like episode eight last year with Jonathan Alexander of UC Irvine, is part of the fourth annual Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival, hosted by Charles Wood, held August 28th to the 31st, when he will be releasing several episodes per day from some 13 podcasts, uh, broadcast on Spotify and elsewhere. This year's theme is AI, applications and trajectories. Be sure to check it out, which I believe will include an episode from our other colleague Dan Dissinger and his Writing Remix podcast. So let's get right into it. First, I will turn it over to our colleague, Nick De Dominic, Associate Professor and Associate Director of a Writing Program, who will offer a brief landscape of these issues and then anyone can jump in from there and it'll be a discussion at that point back and forth. We do have several colleagues with us today steeped in these issues, including Patty Taylor, Maddox Pennington, Uh, my colleague Ellen Whelan-Smith, who I mentioned, Mark Marino, Stephanie Bauer, and Tanvi Patel. So Nick, if you want to start us off, then we'll get
1: going. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan, for for having me. Um, I recently came into the role of Associate Director. I was appointed in July, and it's a, a wild time to take over curriculum for a program because I think with this sort of advent and kind of the whole explosion of LLMs like ChatGPT and others, um, we're about to see a major shift in writing and instruction. Um, I, I think at its base, we have the power of an incredible tool at our hands. However, I think um, it's also really, really scary because it changes how we sort of I- approach instruction. I've been thinking about uh, AIs like lang- uh, large language uh, models in terms of uh, two ways primarily, kind of through labor and kind of through equity. L- labor, in the same way that kind of COVID 19 pre- presented all of these challenges to us from an instruction point of view, I think. LLMs will do the same. Um, It will be sort of up to faculty to familiarize themselves and kind of create literacy for something that they had no idea, most likely had no idea was sort of on the landscape a year ago. And I think that's, that's just really, really huge. I think, uh, you know, from a programmatic standpoint at USC. Uh, in both the writing program and across the larger university, it's really hard for us to come up with kind of top-down pol- uh, policy around the technology. And that's just because I think our program has a hundred people instructing. And we really wanna empower our instructors to kind of make choices uh, that, that get their students somewhere. And we want them to engage with all sorts of different types of tools, whatever makes sense to them. At the same time, though, this thing's here, um, and there's no way that we can kind of stick our head in the sands. And I was just thinking, I was drafting something in Google before I hopped on the call today, and uh, Google asked me if they they wanted uh, to help me write it. And I, I all of our students are going to be confronted with those choices um, because they are so... Uh, right now and will shortly be in every one of the kind of drafting platforms that, that student, students work on. And that kind of gets me to the next place. is this, There's this labor aspect that, that we're thinking about as a department. And then there's this, this kind of issue of equity. How students use these tools is going to vary upon their digital literacy. Faculty members who uh, adopt more kind of surveillance-oriented techniques in the classroom to, say, eliminate students from using them to draft um, are, are most likely going to suss out our students that are already most vulnerable that are st- uh, struggling with critical th- thinking skills. So that's, that's kind of the two pieces that I've been thinking out a lot. And I'm just really, really lucky to be here with a whole bunch of colleagues who I know that are also thinking about that. So I just wanted to kind of turn out those comments to them, see if they had any sort of uh, ideas around equity or labor or anything else.
2: Well, I just want to say I think you're absolutely right that those are two of the big issues Nick that I have, you know, I've only, we've only been really experimenting with this for a couple months, most of us, um, and we don't know yet how exactly it's going to end up playing out in terms of especially equity and how we're going to be working with students, Um, you know, I know you've mentioned that we already know that it's gonna have some disproportionate effects. We know the biases that are built in, or at least a few of those biases have been explored um, and they really are gonna hurt the students who um, come from different language backgrounds, especially. Um, and so these are things that we've got to figure out and if we wanna be equitable and yeah, they do, especially anyone who's gonna be taking a don't use AI, Well who's going to be using it is probably going to be equally, pretty equally distributed uh, across the the students. So the question is, who's going to be getting caught? Um, And we already know how surveillance in other parts of our society ends up catching people who don't fit the norm in particular ways. Um, So, yeah, that's one of my big concerns as well when we think about this on a program level.
1: Yeah, the other the other piece that, that I've been thinking a lot too with that is I think you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you come down and kind of from the top down sort of instigate, hey, all 100 faculty or all 4,200 faculty university-wide have to adopt this technology, have to sort of develop the literacy skills necessary to kind of deploy it. Uh, That's not a great way to empower faculty, but also, too, we do our students a tremendous disadvantage if they walk into one class at 8am and that faculty member has a no AI, no nothing, and then they walk into an 1130 class with, say, Mark Marino, and Mark Marino's like, yeah, do this and have it make all of the things, Um, and you can just kind of understand from a student standpoint how difficult it'll be to kind of switch between those two spaces to be drafting something for that early morning class after coming from this other class being pressed for time and again kind of finding themselves in a tricky situation so it's it's tough
3: yeah well I'm I'm happy to to be part of creating tricky situations for students the um I, I I think those are great issues you guys raised I maybe I'd lead off with some, uh, so I'll, I'll I'll play one one part of this conversation perhaps. So I'm 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 happy to be the one who embraces our uh, robot overlords, invites them into my house, asks them to take my job for me. The this summer I taught a class that was a writing 150 class, an in introduction to you know critical thinking, and critical writing for college class uh, that we all teach to usually first year students. And it was a machine-assisted writing class, and so I I said from the beginning we're going to use these tools and see how we can put them in the service of our uh, you know our writing process. Um, I didn't try to you know I said I said I'm, I, we're gonna we're gonna talk about how these get used. We're gonna see if they improve things, and when they don't, we're gonna be honest about that too. And and certainly the thing that, that Patty and and you just mentioned Nick did happen where students who were the weaker students were the ones who it was most obvious where they were leaning in upon it the, the heaviest. Of course, we'd have a, a student-centered conference-heavy uh, process intensive approach to teaching writing. So I was able to see where most of the students were using it regardless of how it was incorporated into their writing. But certainly students who, who had weak writing skills, it was hard for them to contradict um, the things coming out of the LLM. I, I do want to raise one curious question, just, I don't know, just to trouble things further, which is to say it is possible that the LLMs offer a form of equity in as much as prior to this moment, uh, some students, again, may have had access to people who would help them with their writing outside of our college context. Um, and now, a lot of students have access to that. You know, prior to this, some students had the ability to to write, turn their writing into English because they were native speakers. And now, I, I think we're just becoming more aware of how much students have been using machine translation in in their writing. And so, in as much as this this new these new tools can become, producers of inequity, of course, because there are some students who can afford to pay for, let's say, Chat TPT plus or whatever, and, and those who can't. Uh, on on the other hand, it's it's bringing to all students the kinds of advantages, again, some of them perhaps unethical, but that that some of our students have had because of their, you know, winning the Zipco lottery or because of their their background, uh, you know, that they've had all along. Uh, again, at the end of the day, the good news for me was that most of the students said, sort of demonstrated a kind of performative integrity. You know, I don't want this thing thinking for me. I don't want this thing writing for me. I don't want this thing drafting for me. Uh, you know, we'll we'll see how long that lasts.
4: Right. Could I make a comment? And sorry, sorry, I, I jumped in late. So, um, but I think I'm mostly caught up on where the conversation's at. Um, I'm Zen. Also, to introduce myself, I'm a Uh, fourth year as a full-time lecturer. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm with, I'm with Mark in a lot of ways that there's, there's a lot of potential equity benefits for ChatGPT. I think one of my biggest concerns is exactly around this question of um, multilingual learners using it, because I think that, you know, we've most of us have have embraced, you know, to some extent, I think the idea of code meshing and writing in diverse kinds of Englishes. And I think that what chat GBT could do potentially, on the other hand, is like try to even further standardize a kind of written English, right? A kind of standard standard academic English. And so it's going to be, to me, it's going to be like a, a, a kind of interesting balance between trying to encourage students to use the full diversity and range of their of their Englishes, but then at the same time, you know, using Chat GPT for clarity, using it for conceptual organization, these other things. Um, so I don't have any clear answers on that. It's just one other way though, in which I think it could um, marginalize like certain certain kinds of writers and certain kinds of students by saying, well, this is the right way to write. And you either have to figure out really quick how to write that way or the temptation to use ChatGPT or other services to like to mimic standard academic English could become very strong.
3: And, and to that end, Zen, when students who didn't have that control of language that we're talking about or that standard English in their back pocket, when they tried to use ChatGPT in the summer class, the, the writing became alien to them in a way that made it very hard for them to access it again and revise it. So that definitely happened.
0: Yeah, I noticed in my own prompting of ChatGBT and maybe I'm just not sophisticated enough with my prompts that's another equity issue I think is um, for instance my computer science students are so sophisticated with their use of, of ChatGBT in particular um, you know whereas uh, someone else might not know kind of where to begin but in my own uh, and that's a, that's another question for whether or not and how much we feel an obligation maybe individually not on a top-down level but to teach some of these tools um, so that students can know how to use the LLMs um, in an effective way. But that's something I'm struggling with as well. But I noticed that in my own sort of prompting, uh, it, it, it really did. It's, it's, you know, no matter how I try to get at it through a prompt, it seemed to sort of regenerate the exact kind of prose, you know, argumentative standard academic kind of five paragraph discourse. That I'm trying to teach my students to break away from, so that's why in, in the last semester in spring I ended up kind of saying, you know, it's I, I think uh, I mean at that stage it was effective for me to, to say, you know, use it as a research tool, you know, here's how you can do it, um, it can it can guide you places, I you know think about it at the very least as a sort of very advanced Wikipedia, you know, that can kind of lead you places and and um, turn up possible resources, but but be careful because the more you know something well, this is a bit of a separate issue. There's the academic discourse language standardization issue, but also the more you know something well, the, the more you see uh, in terms of the biases, just how much ChatGBT does rely on sort of standard ways of thinking in a particular discourse. So, I mean, for me in rhetoric, my God, everything GBT says about rhetoric is like Plato, you know, 2.0. It's just like all Plato, um, 2,500 a year, you know, bias against rhetoric. And even if I say, okay, ChatGPT, give me something like different from the standard platonic biases against rhetoric and rhetorical theory, it does it in a, it still does it in a very platonic way because most of the people who have written about the issue Come from um, that kind of philosophical bias. And so I try to tell my students like, the more you know something well, the more problems you see with the LLMs. But the the less you know something well, the harder it is to decipher, right, where those problems are. So I think those are two separate but related issues of bias one on the um, discourse model and bias, and then one on the, the thinking and the scholarship and the research
3: i think that's a great observation ryan and I, I think that's why having assignments where you have students maybe take a prompt to chat gpt and then write their analysis their writing can be what chat gpt left out you know like really take that to task i i, I think i think we should t- i i have some reservations about ever using chat gpt or even perplexity ai as a research tool i i just don't think it's designed for that i think it's a good you know, heuristic for coming up with initial drafts uh, or, or perhaps revising. I, it, it just, it's not connected to the internet in the same way that other things are. It, it, it's not as smart as Wikipedia. Um, but I mean, I, I understand the analogy, but I, I, I just don't think that that's necessarily the strongest way to to use it. I I, I think it's in our best interest to teach our students how to prompt uh, a, a lot of the things that people think GPT can't do or any LLM can't do, it's it's for lack of of particular prompting. I, I, this summer we came up with a with a, a mnemonic for an approach to prompting. I'll quickly go over that was uses the word prompts as its mnemonic. It as a little uh, anagram. It's uh, uh, abbreviation. It's personality is the first thing you could ask for. And it you give it a rubric. That's the R, the prompts. O, objective, you give it goals. M, you give it models. This is the big thing. This new one that's out, Claude.ai, you can upload a novel's length of models for it. So if you're saying it's not writing essays the way I want it to, you could give it a novel's length of sample essays that are in the style and content that you would like it to produce. And it will be trained on that. It's like like a really easy form of fine tuning. Particulars, it's good anything you don't want it to hallucinate or make up, you got to give to it. so quotes, facts, things like this. Again, this is why our Claude is the reason why our um, checking to see if it made up quotes won't won't catch it anymore because someone could upload all of the essays that it wants to, to have quotes from and the LLM will, will just pull from those essays. Um, the task, you know, most people start with the task, but I think I throw it lower in my list because I think these other aspects are very important. And, and the last one I use is setting which is kind of the context for the writing because at least ChatGPT starts, starts sort of tableau rasa at the beginning of every prompting session. Um, when I showed these to, to my students, they seemed like they started to get uh, better results and sort of understand more about why they were getting certain kinds of results. It also felt a little bit like handing the bank robbers the code to the, to the bank vault. So uh, yeah, anyway, a little ambivalence.
1: Mark, that it's Nick again, that's kind of interesting thing because I just think about like a turn of the century morality tale about like trying to cheat the system and then by cheating the system you end up working harder to cheat the system than if you had just done the thing to begin with right, and if I'm going through the process of selecting quotes coming up with a novel's length of material and iteratively prompting this thing. And, you know, Patty and I have talked about this as sort of outcomes and evaluation of outcomes, right? Like that demonstrates really considerable thought in the same way that drafting a paper in one of our classes would, right? And so then, you know, if I can train Claude on creating this thing. Am I not then doing this? And I'm going through revision processes. So you get into a weird snake eating the snake kind of piece there, but quote selection, finding enough language where I'm reverse engineering what I think the instructor wants to give to this thing means I have to interact with that language at some point. And then I'm also reading product and drafting through that too, right? I just just painted the fence.
3: Yeah, right. Well, which is which is one way great to situate the act of even coming up with a good prompt or using engaging these as a way of I mean, you'll you'll notice in that little silly mnemonic of prompts it basically has a lot of the things we teach in rhetorical situations anyway, right? Consideration of audience and context, right? All all of these things. So, um but but Nick what you're describing, of course, you know, might might be some version of the new way the fence gets painted, though. And again, what the the thing is, the, the potential is maybe, like, if it's a good heuristic tool, may, maybe it will get you someplace you didn't expect to get. A, a lot of my students found it was useful to use for to get them past their writer's block. Mm. I don't know, I, I have an ambivalence about that, but, but it, it is possible that this, what feels like, I hear what you're saying about, about the enormous the, the labor involved in, in that process and it leading you to sort of similar ends, but if we took it the other way, I guess, the other thing that's implied by what you're saying is that, that gives us an awful lot still to evaluate in the, in the students' process.
5: I wanna throw another question on um, how many of us just by a show of hands, this is Maddox Pennington, by the way, would be messing around with ChatGPT if you weren't teaching writing, like as writers, yeah? So I would think about that, like in the way that I present this to students, because one of my things is like, if I weren't teaching this, I would not be touching this thing with a 10 foot pole. But because I am teaching it, I'm interested in what it can do and what it can't do. And like, I'm a kid who grew up with like that Hans Christian Andersen story, the Nightingale, right? Where like, you have this beautiful bird that makes the emperor so happy and then he gets an electronic one and he likes that better, but then that dies and then he's about to die, but the other bird comes back, right? So some things that I wanna think about when presenting this to my students are, they're gonna have a variety of dispositions too. I mean, I think the people that gravitate towards, for example, a coach Marino are gonna, you know, either pick up that vibe or leave. And I think, the way that I'm trying to use it this semester, at least is in the first part of my class with a lot of like expectation setting, like what types of things can this help us do from the ground up? And then as we get on, like I'm not interested in like micromanaging my students process to make sure they're not using it, but I do want them to be able to, and I know some of us do this too, have like reflections. How did you use it? Why did you use it? Um, I'm also really interested in demonstrating the limitations of its abilities. Like if I ask for, a list of prompts and then I'm like, okay, give me some authors or experts to check into for that prompt. I have to ask multiple times to get non-white authors, to get queer authors. Like I have to ask multiple times for the types of things I want, which I hope dramatizes for students that when they go with like the first four Google results, they're doing the exact same thing, right? I'm interested in like the political implications of something that is regarded as air quotes neutral um, and in making room for different dispositions towards the tool in the way that we all work at various stages.
6: I would just also like to bring in the question that, I, the well, questions of plagiarism. Um, Mark, the what you're saying, what is it, Claudius? I mean, that sounds like gross plagiarism by infringements, right? If you're just feeding it the uh, works of published authors, then it seems like it, to me, is asking students to do exactly what we tell them they shouldn't do, which is just take things, unattributed from other authors. And I know that there have been creative producers who are in lawsuits right now pushing back against it. And then the other thing I would say, and I don't, obviously I don't, I mean, I just maybe at a basic level, I come to this with a lot of skepticism and there's a way in which like some of the people that I'm listening to in these conversations are cautioning that this is gonna be another kind of flash in the pan, like MOOCs, you know, it's gonna change everything or crypto, it's gonna change everything. And some people, you know, I'm not persuaded by that necessarily, but I do take that kind of with, okay, like maybe maybe that suggests we approach this not with just unalloyed enthusiasm or, or inevitability. That's the other thing. And I guess I see what the actor's doing as being also really important to Nick's point about labor because the actors are saying, and writers, you know, they're saying, no, we're not gonna accept this as inevitable, that this is coming. We're gonna make contracts that are gonna guarantee that we still have a place in this process. And so I guess I would like to see us as well not just be like bowled along by the inevitability of this is happening and get aboard or you're a Luddite or whatever it is, but also just to have a recognition that, I mean, these are exciting and, you know, really, really dangerous, and I think where there's too much of just the willing, either like, well, it's happening, I guess we got to go along with it, or just like, yay, let's do this, and not enough, like, what is what does this mean in terms of the ways in which these t- tools work, in terms of, you know, another thing about labor, to your point again, Nick, is the ways of who's feeding, who's training, these models. And there have been stories about the ways in which those people are being exploited for their labor, the resources that are going into these tools. So I think all of those are things that I, and I I worry because USC, I think so often is just following the trend and jumping aboard where the money seems to be, sorry, but, um, and I think it's, to to really important that programs like ours are the ones that are really taking this very, very seriously and the the concerns that, that we're raising in all of this.
2: Yeah. I agree with you, Stephanie, but I I uh, was at Georgia Tech when they were doing, uh, when the MOOCs were kind of all the big rage, this is going to completely change higher education. And so my program there, and um, this is Patty Taylor, by the way, um, my program, what they did is, that okay, let's test this. Um, And they, I think it was really intentional engagement that gave us the ability to participate in those conversations that we have to actually be willing demonstrate our willingness to try these things, and then think about them critically rather than always being from the outside being the critical uh, voices. Otherwise we just end up as Cassandras where we will say, oh, the, the, here are all these problems. But if we haven't shown the willingness to engage, they're not. we're not gonna end up being listened to. So I think it's really important to have a mix of people who are experimenting and dealing with these and trying things, um, especially here in these early stages so that we have the ethos to be able to persuade and say here's what it's doing to our students here's what's useful here's where we really have a big problem and this isn't going to change what you think it's going to change um i know that that was really what came out of georgia tech's experiment trying to do a freshman comp MOOC was it was like, this does not work. Here are the things that looked like they might work and then did not pan out. Um, And the ability to have the evidence to support that um, was really crucial for a lot of the pushback that our program actually ended up doing for the university as a whole. Uh, Karen Head wrote a a book about it um, a few years ago about that experiment.
3: I think, um, I, I I love the the calls for critical AI literacy, as some people call it. To the to the plagiarism question, Stephanie, if people upload, uh, you know, all their articles to Claude and then they say draw quotes from this, they're they're not doing anything more plagiarism than than anyone else does. What I'm saying is that those quotes will be properly attributed to the articles that where where they came from. What what the students are doing at that point are they're feeding the system models, which, which is to some extent what we teach students to do in their own learning when we give them a syllabus full of readings that are that are models for them. Um, I don't think, again, be, trying to be a futurist is, is a silly proposition, which is why I'm happy to also be a fiction writer um, and kind of a satirist, but um, I don't think the analogy to MOOCs holds up here. I think it's more like smartphones or the internet, in that you cannot use a smartphone, but you can't stop a smartphone from being here. And you cannot use the internet, but you can't say that the internet hasn't already changed everything. Um, I don't know. My, 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 my little takeaways, I, I, I should try to boil them down for the beginning of the semester. You know, to to basically this. You know, I think I think people shouldn't be afraid. You know, the LLMs aren't that good just yet. They still come up with, as Ryan pointed out, five paragraph essays. Their theses are really listy. <laughs> um, their conclusions begin in conclusion. I mean, this is at this point again. Who knows? Maybe maybe next week it'll do something different. I think we should not ban. I think we should think we should bring these things in. I, I use the analogy of I think we should build build a boat and not a wall to when the flood comes, which it's here. Um, I do think we should build critical AI literacy and there are great resources for for that out there. I like I like reading people like Rita Rayleigh and Liz Lotion folks like that. I think Maha Bali, all, all those folks we had that Maddox and I had at the future of writing symposium this past May were were wonderful contributors to that. Um, I think people should share resources you know we need to do this as much as possible as as teachers we've got a little listserv we've got going on here that that's based out of usc but anybody can join that that where we're discussing these issues um and um and then also i think we need to keep in mind that um that you know contexts are are really different all all around the globe at this point too and, and for where people are using these so you know that. That, that's going to affect everyone as well in in lots of different ways.
6: Just to follow up on that, my point about the plagiarism wasn't with the students; it was with the authors whose work is being fed into CLOT.
3: Yeah, I think I think again that's to me that's a little bit of the the toothpaste is out of the tube one already, but but I I, I understand I understand the the response, and I understand why people. Have been trying to figure out ways to oppose that, but a lot of these models are already made, so it's it's a little well, bit of a moot point. You know,
6: just to get, no, not not true though, Mark. There was that guy who put together the repository of all of the works. Did you read about that? And then the yeah. authors, the living authors, are like, "What are you talking about?" And he took it down. So I don't know, again, I don't think it's it's inevitable. I'm going to come, and again, I take all of your points. I completely agree with you. I am on board with the literacy, amen. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Patty's right. We need to be studying these tools. We can't be just on the outside being the, you know, doomsayers or whatnot. But I will counter your analogies with a couple of other analogies that Ezra Klein gave about what all these things are like. I don't know if y'all read his column about it, but he described it as a summoning, that we're summoning these spirits that we don't understand. And I thought that that was, again, maybe hyperbolic, but also uh, there is a way in which even the people, you know, as we know, who are working on these tools are concerned about the interpretability of them and what happens when we're creating these tools that we don't understand. And then I also read, I don't know if y'all read the Ted Chang article in the New Yorker and he does his analogy is uh, it's McKinsey for the, uh, it's capitals willing executioners. And again, to the to Nick's point about, about the labor concerns. So, you know, I think we, again, wanna be looking at these things and all of their complexities and we don't know what's gonna happen. But I think rather than just being, again, like bowled over, and drawn into it, either with a sense of enthusiasm or doom, I think we also have to recognize that we have agency too and that the future isn't inevitable and we can create that. And that's one of the things that it's so great that you all are really at the forefront of of doing this and having these
2: kinds of conversations.
3: Yeah, I, I hope you're right. I suspect you're wrong.
2: I will just add that I think one of the things we have to do is make sure we're having these conversations not just amongst ourselves, but specifically with our students. Because if we're just having these as faculty, um, then I I think students are getting a very distorted view of the conversations about AI if we're not having these conversations with them and we're not getting their input. Um, That's one of the things I'm gonna be trying to do, be really intentional with them about this semester um, is really trying to say, make sure that they're making informed decisions and not just kind of going with the flow of everybody else is using it um, and saying, I'm I'm going to be doing a lot of stuff with talking about like the cognitive science of learning. And what is it that AI is potentially doing to their own learning processes, as well as their writing processes? Because I think there's going to be a real temptation for a lot of them is to just use it without thinking. And so the critical AI, AI, AI literacy for me is not just how do you use this tool? What are its uses in limits, but what about the broader context in which we're engaging with it? How is this affecting, you know, the the medium is the message. What is the message of this medium? Um, and I think that's something that for students can get really lost if we just have these conversations amongst ourselves.
3: Yeah, I think I think one of the things that happened just to build on Patty's point that really helped this summer was the the Bender et al. stochastic parrots article and the other Chang article about the blurry JPEG proved to be really useful in helping students to understand the way the system worked. And once they understood like the, these, these again, they're just analogies, the like stochastic parrots, et cetera, the, this probable probabilistic word producing engine, once they understood that, then they were less likely to ask it to do stuff that it's kind of incapable of doing. I wanted
1: to add on, on to that list that Dan McQuillan, sort of it, the bullshit machine analogy is really, really good, right? That the, the allegiance of this technology is not to veracity, it's just overwhelming confidence. And you can start to make analogs to other things that students may may not be able to get a handle on. And it's just it's bullshit, just bullshit. Yeah, on,
5: even
7: before, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, even before you know any of this came down, I, I've been teaching in 340 for the last maybe three or four years. I've been teaching. Um, I open it uh, with having them read Hannah Arendt's um, essay. Uh, it was called I um, can't remember what it's called now, but it's about it's on it's about thinking. Um, it's on what thinking you know. It's a philosophical sort of disquisition on what it means to think, um, and she opposes it to knowing. And so we use like I use that throughout the the course. You know, what are you doing when you're thinking versus what are you doing when you're when when you are knowing something, right? Like, um, and I I haven't done it yet, but I mean, it seems to me that there's a case to be made that you know AI doesn't think in the same way as humans think, uh, at least not yet, right? And that um, in one of the things that I taught that I as a writer, I, th- I think about is the um, the idea of unpredictability, right? Like when you're writing something, you never know where it's gonna go. And a lot of the not knowing comes from the fact that you're like an embodied person. And so the, the path that you take is going to like hook into all these weird embodied experiences that a machine isn't going to have. Um, and the sort of unpredictability is what thinking is about. And that, that's Aaron's point anyway, is that thinking isn't thinking if you know in advance uh, that there's a probabilistic outcome. Um, anyway, I w- even without bringing in AI, I find the students really see that sort of distinction between thinking and knowing as really um, uh, useful in, in their own thinking about what it is they're even doing here at college, right? And what, what matters to them to take away from a class like this.
3: Well, and, that, and that's the problem that I had with my students using it for their sort of drafting tool, their brainstorming tool, right? was mm-hmm. that I know it got them past that hump of like a blank page, but to me that struggle is is an enormously important struggle. The thing that happens while you're trying to think, what's that sentence gonna be 100%. Mm-hmm. Now, I, we should bring up another aspect of this though. So during the course of the semester, building on this exercise that Jeremy Douglas came up with called, he calls it the perfect uh, perfect nanny or perfect tutor exercise. You have students come up with what they can what they would define to be a perfect writing instructor. And they give them all the attributes, or all the att- them all the attributes that they would want this person to have. They give them a rubric. They give them expectations, ways of giving feedback. And then we went through the exercise of having the students put their papers into that. This is where it gets really scary into the LLM and to generate some feedback. So I did this exercise with them. I made one. I made two. I made one called Coach Tutor and one called Reviewer Number Two. And uh, and I used them both with ChatGPT 3.5 and with ChatGPT 4, and uh, then I would I gave it a series of papers, and uh, and the feedback that it gave those papers, while not always exactly what I would say, were uh, re- was remarkable. Uh, I mean, remarkable in that it certainly applied to the writing, and this is one of those like unpredictable ramifications of using. These tools. What I like about the exercise is it gets students to think about rubrics. But what was interesting to me more than I expected was how well the system could provide frameworks of useful feedback to students that seemed applied directly to the paper that was fed in. Now, at that point, maybe maybe I have taught you know thought us out of a job, but it was interesting.
5: I mean, I think if the pandemic, I'm not gonna use that cliche of it, it's taught us anything, but students have just spent like years trying to learn in this kind of machine-centric, screen-centric way. And I think it just disadvantages a lot of different types of learning styles and a lot of like neurodivergences. And so I think um you know how like cars exist, but people still go hiking. <laughs> like that's one of the ideas I want to try to sell my students on, and offer them both in terms of like developing the prompt and developing their process. Like I think it's part of something that's always been a really core value of mine of like empowering students out of that corner that a five paragraph test centered essay puts you in. Um, I think it's a great nudge to folks who maybe get stuck in their prompts who need to come up with a prompt that is like urgent and relevant to students, to like Patty said, involving students in that process of choosing your genre and your audience. Uh, And it's also involved in like a decolonial process of bringing more voices in, right? Because if a certain part of the academy is gonna get more and more attracted to these like normalizing kind of, again, these these, like structured approaches, these trying to replicate human thought approaches and overlooking the fact that like we all have human thought right now. (laughs) Like in terms of being a creative writer, on academic or publicly relevant topics, every student has something that's more valuable to me than what AI is. Um, And I really look forward to like putting that in my materials as well. Like I may not be able to get every kid on board with the intrinsic value of learning, but I am always gonna like model for them, both in my feedback and in our work of constructing a class community together that they absolutely provide something that is essential. And just because you can, Copy doesn't mean at some point you don't want to like hike up to the top of Griffith Park and just look around like, yeah, there's Google Maps, but is it the same thing? No. (laughs) And I think it's also an invitation to play around with things, to play with zines, to play with switching modes. And like, if you're already interested in multimodal things, there's a lot you can offer your students that aren't just, how do we get really good at this one thing? I do think it's valuable to know how to use this tool, but I also think there's just so much value in like making the full buffet of things. As important as sussing this out.
1: Well, I think about my favorite students too, and my favorite students are the ones who think weird shit, right? And by the very nature of these technologies, right, they're sort of replicating what someone in like the cookie reward system thought looked like—a semblance of what good writing should look like, which is not weird shit, right? And and I think you know we are fortunate in some ways, and. It, up in comparison to the rest of the university in the larger landscape in comparison to the, to the university because of how process we base it are in our classrooms. So I think the kind of doom and gloom plagiarism aspects of this is something that I know it's present front of mind for a lot of people, but I don't think really it's gonna be a thing that we really have to worry about as long as sort of pedagogies don't get lazy. I do think that sort of if you are teaching a class and you're say you're the class is what American and you read Moby Dick that semester and you're one of these professors that comes in and explicates. And then you at the end of the term, the three weeks before, you go write me a 10 page paper on this sentence I put on the board. That person's pedagogy is going to get blown away. But it was never good to begin with, right? And that's, that's what's going to sort of kind of get wide open There. The other thing is too. back to this idea of sort of, you know, the writers in my classes that are sort of quote unquote most rewarded with better grades. They're thinking about things in complicated and nuanced ways in ways that these technologies won't think about them. And again, too, I think particularly in freshman writing where we're tremendously privileged is that our students are gunners. They were at these little private schools and they were just beautiful flowers and everybody told them they were special. And if we continue to tell them that they will be special if they think in ways that these technologies don't, I think we can engender them to do that and show them the use of the technology as tool, but not the totality of their writing experience. So that's that's kind of my... I
3: I find that characterization like really appealingly romantic. Um, Thanks, Mark. But, but, but... But because I'm self-serving, having co-authored a plagiarized book with ChatGPT, Hallucinate This. Yeah, but um, it's not very good. I read it. It's, I, I it's was. Uh, like I didn't enjoy it. I was. Uh, you I was, don't think that's a romantic project. Come on. My point is that I was surprised by. It surprised me by what it could do. The 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 things that we're saying, like our very, very best students can do, like they, they do things unusually, like they whatever, like. You said the exact opposite on this very podcast
1: in the last hour. You said it's not capable of producing good things. It's a five paragraph essay. The theses are list, listy. You've oscillated so hard, man.
5: I know Tammy well, wants to wait in, but I want to say one thing about Mark's book. Like any book, part of the experience of what makes it special is in the reader. Like when I read that book, it's the gut punch at the bottom of every page of getting caught into thinking it's real and then finding out it's not. That's not endemic to the book. That's endemic to me as a reader, and lots of readers, not just me. I'm very special, and also. Putting
1: together the work,
3: I, I think I think you've you've encapsulated my my stance entirely, Nick. I am I am a hundred percent thoroughly on board and a hundred percent horrified at the same moment. That's We're quantum mechanics. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think Tanvi had something to to add.
2: Thank you all for this discussion. I really appreciate it. I know we've been talking a lot about how students might use AI for papers that they're generating, but I know there's an inherent sort of um, discussion happening about faculty use of AI. I had a colleague um, uh, confide in me that that a, another professor got in trouble from his students because he had generated a
6: prompt using AI and they, his students accused him of plagiarism. And so I'm
2: wondering how we use it, how we use it ethically, Um, because this is also, you know, in the interest of learning a lot, there's also ways in which we can use this for other purposes, so I just thought I'd throw that.
1: Really quick, too, I want to jump in. I had a conversation with our director the other day about some of the really labor-intensive processes that we have to go through for promotion, for merit review, and how AI is a fantastic tool to generate a five-page letter to do that um and then you asked it
5: to generate a bio of you though because it got about 200 words of me in and then it was somebody else like several <laughs> generations of somebody else in.
1: it's like that um ai they where the person asked the uh the ai to ma- make her look more professional so it gave her blonde hair and blue eyes right like yeah there's there's some problems in it
3: i don't know i'll tell you one place I, I was able to use it that i was really happy with which was to come up with quirky check-in questions. So. Uh, Let me give you one that I came up with. Um, Picture this, you've been granted your own floating island in the sky and you can customize it in any way you want. What unique features does your island have that reflect your personality or passions? Are there inhabitants, festivals, or secret hideouts? Share a snippet of the folklore or tales that are told about your floating paradise. Uh, or, Or another one that I loved was, if you were to morph into an exotic creature every time you listen to your favorite song, what creature would that be and why? Describe the first time you transform. Where are you? What's happening around you? And how do your how do your new abilities or senses heighten your experience to the song and the world?
5: Can't wait uh, for the evals that are left. <laughs> I mean, I play <laughs> Desert Island with my students and I even have them like pick random things and I put it all on Miro. Anyway, I like those. Miro! Parts. I would say one thing for me in terms of not getting in trouble, right, is just super transparency, like for folks that find themselves on the other side of the digital divide, or like, I don't know how to program this thing to do anything. I don't know how to give it my personality. I'm just working on giving myself my personality, but I'll do what I always do when I don't know stuff, which is just we Google it together. And so I did that with my students uh, when we were trying to figure out what are like, major newspapers saying about universities and AI, and then doing rhetorical analysis of the tone, but just like opening it up and, and walking through it together, I think is a super useful tool because then you can say what you like or don't like, and they can observe what they like or don't like. And to, I think Stephanie and other folks' points and Ellen's points, they'll figure out, oh, I can like or not like this. You know, this isn't like the TI-83 that I got handed in whenever we got handed that. I don't have to use this. And you're you're again just modeling that process of inquiry, right? Like none of us have any of the answers, but I think the best thing that we can do is just keep being transparent about what's out there and what we think about it.
1: I've got a friend that's at a tech company and a CEO only interacts with him through chat GPT generated memos. And those memos <laughs> often contradict what the CEO is saying to him in meetings because there's a disconnect, you know sort of literacy doesn't review it. Right. And (laughs) I do think that there ultimately will be some kind of larger social fallout where we've got written documentation that's being produced by, you know, also the slip and fall lawyer that, you know, was getting uh, his briefs. Drafted by chat GPT to um, what what happened with this instructor the students came back and said chat GPT generated and then where, where did that yeah, come. Conversation... I
2: don't know if the case has been solved yet but right. yeah the students were not happy that the, the instructor hadn't written their own prompt here. Um, well, I mean, that's a, that's a really nice thing in the sense of like it's it's making the students very aware of how we feel when we get papers that are plagiarized or, you know, when students, you know, deny that they've done something that they clearly have done, right? I mean, I think, one for me, the thing that I'm putting on my syllabus this semester is, uh, you know, it's got two parts. It's got one part, uh, if you... Couldn't ethically ask another person to do something to your paper and submit it as your own work. You can't ask ChatGPT or another AI to do it. Um, and then the second thing is, if you are using it in a way you think is ethical, document the heck out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, explain, describe, include your prompts. You know, include um, links to the the conversations then we can have a conversation. And I think that's the real thing is like, if you're gonna use it in your work, you darn well better be documenting that as, you know, as a footnote, just as you like, oh, this idea came from this colleague in this conversation. We should be doing that when we're writing professional documents and, you know, publications. We should be, if we're using chat GPT or other AI, I think we should be doing the same kind of crediting and documentation um, that that's what we're doing. And if we, and we should especially be doing that with our students if we're expecting that of them, right? If we expect them to document their process, if we expect them to give credit, then we should be doing the same thing. I, I just think it's gonna be
3: difficult to in, enforce because I think if if we go back to Nick's, you know, his story from the beginning of the podcast where he talks about it popping up on, on, you know, Google Docs or Microsoft Word, right? I think that's gonna be, it's gonna be increasingly showing up in places sort of like, in the composition moment in ways that are going to be hard to isolate and document. And what that's going to lead to is just like now, for the past 20 years, I've been grading sentences that could only produce be produced by the combination of a student and a grammar checker. Only they would think that this was a good sentence to pass on to someone. Similarly, we're going to get new forms of writing that are going to be like weird amalgamations of student work and AI work. And it's going to be unsatisfactory on on new new levels that we have we have yet to, to have fully encountered
0: if i can jump back to the yeah to that point on the the influence because uh i'm thinking a lot about you know how how ai ChatGPT llms are something are, are a new version of something old right i mean the way that rhetoric used to be taught and is still taught um is through imitation and so you know that was the, the oldest form of rhetoric teaching was you want to do this thing? Here's a bunch of people who did that thing, you know, like read and listen and do it that way. And then you as you learn and you you are a kind of LLM yourself, you internalize and you um, produce a speech or, or whatever. That sounds a lot like um, who you've been listening to or reading. And in fact, I think when we had Daniel Gross from UC Irvine, associate um, professor of English over there, he was saying, in fact, that that's something that you can look for as a more advanced, you know, we you know we all start out learning language through imitating our parents and our family and our friends and so on. Um, and as you get more advanced, uh, it's, you know, kind of like Bruce Lee says, right, I mean, adapt what is useful, reject what is useless and create what is uniquely your own. And the most advanced, you know, writers will be able to have that input, but also create something that isn't just a replication. Or an imitation, and Daniel Gross was saying, like, that's how you know you've gone too far. Is like that, that your article that you are writing sounds exactly like some of that you've been that you've been researching. And so, um, in in a way, you know, I think the LLMs are are a new version of something old. A, a kind of you know, learning in one way, learning through um, through imitation, where the student you know takes in or or, or uses or or um, manipulates the the input right from their from their um chat gbt or whatever um and the more advanced way to 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 work with it as as a writer or thinker i think is to um to use it as a resource as you would use kind of any other resource but but to have the the the, the, the method of working through it right and, and of differentiating your own um voice so i think it does you know it can um, work as a resource that way. Uh, just just the one point on equity, because I was thinking of Chuck Polnick, you know, who, who said somebody interviewed him and, and asked, uh, "Well, who are your influences for your writing style?" And he said, "I'm a product of everyone I've ever read read or met." And so, and how do you properly document or give credit to those people who all kind of mesh together? So from the from the student end, I think. That's okay, right? I mean they're they're reading, they're thinking they're they're developing their voice. Um, but just to to point to Stephanie's point, um, the, the I think one of the main equity issues there is then the, the, the on the on the flip side when you have um, the companies you know getting revenue from these models um, versus a student who is uh, writing a paper maybe not properly citing. Um, and learning to do so versus someone who is getting revenue from the the combination of those works, and, and then and then not paying the person right for for their share of that of that system. So I think those are a little bit a little bit different, but yeah, Maddox.
5: I think also in terms of of emphasizing voice, right, is rather than getting students worried about sounding like someone, you know, like leaning into that for short bursts. Like I was a kid who I grew up reading like PG Woodhouse and Mark Twain, and sometimes everything sounded like Bertie Wooster or Innocence Abroad, right? And so you sort of lean into the skid and then lean out. And so I like the idea of short things or rewriting the same, you know, paragraph in different voices or in different modes. I think these are all useful long-term writing process tools that we can also use to dramatize like those small word choices really matter. Like this one might make you sound like a robot. This one might make you sound like a robot trying to sound like a person. And this one is, you know, you laying on somebody's voice. And I think this generation is pretty inventive in that way. I mean, there's a lot of memes, right? About using predictive text to write messages and stuff. I plan to spend some time in like the first or second day of my class talking about like attention as a currency. And like, what can you disable so that your attention isn't disrupted? Let's all go to Google Docs together and disable the predictive sentence level text because I I just, I just see them do that and they just hit, yep, 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 without even thinking about it. And they forget that that's a thing that you can turn on or turn off. And there's so much about academic institutions, not just USC, but everywhere that I want students to be willing to question and like decide, is this the right hat for me? Um, that I think hopefully it, it's, all building into an ongoing conversation it's not just like a new panic thing you know like giving your kids any other fundamental life talk so i've heard you want to build that in as you go you don't want to just panic when there's an urban legend about a certain kind of party yeah. just to
2: go back to what you were saying Ryan about uh, the you know imitations always been a part of you know learning how to write and I think that's absolutely correct but I one of the things that I've been thinking about is like not just what our students right now are doing but how is this going to affect the students we have five years from now and if we are if they are being trained to outsource that imitative uh, practice, what is that going to do to their own voice, to their own writing? Um, I don't know. I had, like, maybe it'll still be fine and it'll work, but I'm also wondering how much, uh, if as they come to rely on it and use this in a, as an extension of their writing process, what will atrophy in themselves that they cannot do it? unless they have that assist. Um, there's a, you know, th- that happens with pretty, I mean, like when you go back to Plato and, you know, the discussion about, oh, when well, now we have writing, our memories are going to atrophy they weren't exactly wrong. It was different than they thought it was going to be, but they weren't wrong. Um, And so I think that's one of my big questions that I'm gonna be kind of trying to watch for is, what are the long-term ramifications of relying on this technology? I know my writing process has changed because of my reliance on particular tools. What is a reliance on this technology going to change about me as a writer? Um, And I don't have any answers for. That, um, but I want to be really careful and thinking about that, and I want my students to be thinking about that as well. And I'm, I am a little con- like worried in the kind of general sense about the students who it's been built into their process from the beginning. We don't have any of those students yet, but it's not going to be long off.
3: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree. I agree with you, Patty. And 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 I think if I, the only other thing I just want to throw out there for people who are thinking of not bringing it into their class. Is if we're not going to to teach engagement, critical or otherwise, with these tools, who 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 is that? When they graduate, these students are going to go out to workplaces where they're going to be sitting next to the person who can write a hundred letters in two minutes because they're using these tools. I, I I don't need them to turn into that person. I don't need them to outpace that person. I just want them to have a sophisticated notion of how these tools could be part of their writing process. And then I I just got to reconcile one dichotomy that. Nick pointed out in my own standpoint, which is, yeah, I don't think that these tools are very good on their own. I think someone who knows how to write can get good writing out of them. And so obviously our job is still to get people to be good writers, good critical thinkers.
5: And to recognize good writing when they see it, right? Because that's another problem is that students will be like, oh, look how many words it filled out. I have four pages now and think that their problems are solved. And it's like, oh no, your problems are just beginning.
3: (laughs) You've made more problems for yourself. Well, this may be a good
0: place to wrap things up um, since we're past the hour here. Um, I'll just yeah close it with a with a reference to what Paddy was saying there about um, Plato right and the, and the the complaint on writing is uh, you know s- a separate you know force of separation and writing destroys memory and writing separates the author and the text and writing does this and that and I really think he was right right on, on basically all those points um, but right then you have to say well you know with any technology and we forget that I always think of Walter Ong's old uh, piece that was very famous, I think, in the 80s, right? Writing is a technology that restructures thought. And so we don't think of writing as a technology as much as we probably should. And so with any technology you have to ask, you know, uh, kind of like I frame this discussion, I mean, what are the, what is the potential, what are the potentials and what are the pitfalls? So I, I do feel for me, um, I mean, I was very skeptical in the beginning. I do think that I mean, I feel personally an obligation to, you know, in my courses, teach students how to navigate at least um, these tools uh, to, to raise some of the, the questions that we've been talking about in terms of um, the writing process, the research process, uh, equity, right? All these, you know, learning language, standardization, academic discourse. I mean, I think, I mean, I feel an obligation to talk about these things in my courses, um, but I don't feel an obligation to necessarily give an answer, right? I mean, it's not our job to tell students what to think. And so if we could just give them um, perhaps the right questions, um, and I think, you know, in our classroom, some of the space to think through the questions, at, at the very least, that, that would be um, a good place to, to start. So uh, th- thanks everybody for, for being here and for all colleagues who could join us uh, for this discussion. And we'll go ahead and end our 11th uh, podcast event here and uh, be sure to check out the rest of the big rhetorical podcast, which will be ongoing from August 28th to the 31st uh, to hear more on these issues and we will see all of you again uh, in fall.